The Ark in the Darkness, Unearthing the Mysteries of Noah's Flood, comes to a theater near you on March 20th and 21st. What happened to the dinosaurs? Why did God send the flood? This film unveils compelling evidence in support of the Bible from a team of scientists from Answers in Genesis and Liberty University. The Ark in the Darkness reveals the truth about Noah's flood. This incredible film hits theaters on March 20th and 21st. Buy your tickets now at noahsflood.com. That's noahsflood.com. Access more. Hello, friend. This is Max Locato. Thanks for tuning in. It's an honor to be with you. As we study God's Word together, may our time uplift and encourage you. If you could use some hope, I pray you find it here today. Most of the time, we try to figure out the future by thinking about the future. And there's a lot of truth in that. But today, I want to talk to you about a way to discover your uniqueness by looking at your past. Yes, looking back can help you find your way forward. Let's talk about reading life backwards. You are never more satisfied in life, and you never bring more glory to God in life than when you do the most what you do the best. But finding out what that is and unpacking your bag is not always easy. And for that reason, I'd like to ask you to think about your life for just a few moments. Ever so often, we find ourselves in the flow of life, not wrestling it, not strangling it, not trying to coerce it or beat it, but we're riding it as if life itself were a channel carrying us. And there's a sense of obviousness a sense of easiness that comes. So much so that we're tempted to say, you know what? I was made to do this. Have you ever found yourself riding in the flow of life? Indulge me for a second. Think back to your childhood. What was that activity when you were a youngster that lured you off the gray sidewalk of life into the amusement park packed with colors and sounds and fireworks. Oh, the fireworks. All five senses were engaged. Every brain cell buzzed. Every nerve ending tingled. What were you doing at that moment as a child? Where were you? Maybe in a garage assembling a model airplane. Maybe in a garden with your aunt, sowing seed. Maybe you were in the school playground, organizing all the kids into games. Whatever it was, can't you remember it still? You can still smell the glue from the garage. You can still feel the soil from the garden. You can still hear the shouts and the squeals from the kids. There was just something about that moment that that was nigh on magical. The only bad moment was the final moment. And you probably didn't use the terms, but you could have. You could have said, you know, I was made to do this. 
Now, fast forward your memory a few years and ask the question again. Let childhood become adolescence. Let elementary school become middle school and high school. And isolate those days when life worked, when it just made sense to you. Again, ask yourself the question. What were you doing? What topics were you considering? How were you relating to the people around you? What was the environment in which you found yourself? And then if you'll allow me, if, you'll, if your age allows, move forward again into young adulthood, maybe your college years or early years in your career. There were some days in which everything just seemed to connect. There is a sense in which life made sense to you. Reflect on those days that you floated on the flow of life. No upstream thrashing, no battling against the rip tide, no fear of a whitewater panic. You just kind of rode the tide during those days. Maybe you were away for a summer, engaged at a camp. Maybe it was a special project at work. Maybe it was a particular course that you took at a community college, maybe even in graduate school. On those days, this is an important question. What activities took your focus? What objects did you hold? What topics did you consider? These are the kind of questions, and this is exactly the exercise that we're leading people through in our My Story seminar. And our goal is to help people do the most what they do the best, because we believe that we are never more satisfied and God is never more pleased than when we do the most what we do the best. And when you take time to reflect on this, I want to tell you something. You're going to find some commonalities. You're going to find some common denominators between your youth, between your teenage years, between your adult years. You're going to find that though the characters swap out and though the details alter, you're going to find that your bent, your passion, what you yearn to do, you just keep doing. It's as if the undertow of life's river just keeps dropping you at this particular bank. You think back over it. You have always been, and you fill in the blank, fixing things, challenging the system, rooting for the underdog, organizing facts, behind the scenes, up front, loving the small, making a statement, impacting the world. You've always been doing the same thing. The situation changes, but there's something in you, God-given in you, that just keeps bubbling to the surface. That's who God made you to be. You always have been doing the same thing. And why not? It came easy to you. It came easy to you. In fact, when you think about those things, check me on this. There are those times you look back and you look at you look back and you remember thinking, can everybody do this? Can everybody memorize the periodic table? What's so hard about geometry? I hated the kids who said that. <laughs> but there were kids who said, what's so hard about geometry? <laughs> Diagramming a sentence. Huh? Or leaders who say, you know, I can get us together. Oh, I see where we need to go. It's obvious. Well, it's obvious to you, but it's not obvious to others. But what is obvious to you says much about who you are. About much about who God made you. 
to be. That's the flow of life where God placed you. And there's something about reflecting on your past that can tell you much about the future. William Wordsworth wrote, the child is the father of the man. Want direction for your future? This may sound odd, but read your life backwards. The oak indwells the acorn. Your past presents your future. Job placement consultants at People Management Incorporated have asked over 70,000 clients to describe some things you've done in your life that you enjoyed doing and believe you did well. In every case, writes founder Arthur Miller Jr., the data showed that people had invariably reverted to the same pattern of functioning whenever they had done something they enjoyed doing and did well. Or, to put it more briefly, our past presents our future. Now, can this be true? Can childhood strengths and celebrations forecast adult abilities? And for our context, how does this square with Scripture? Well, I have, I have some people for you to think about as we ponder this. I have some people for you to think about. You know, the Bible grants few multi-chapter biographies of her characters. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but most characters in the Bible appear and disappear within a few pages, usually within the same phase of life. But there are a handful of characters for whom we have a glimpse early in their life, then maybe midlife, and then late in their life. And, And as we look at some of these characters, we begin to see this theme that what appears early in their life appears midlife, appears in their later years. Take, for example, the case of the Egyptian prince. As a young man, he excelled in the ways of the court. He mastered the laws of the ancient land. He studied at the feet of the world's finest astronomers and mathematicians and lawyers. 2,000 years later, he would be remembered as learned in all wisdom of all the Egyptians. And he was mighty in words and deeds, Acts 7 and verse 22. Now, while we know little about Moses' upbringing, we can begin to piece together the facts and I think walk away with at least two truths. Number one, he displayed an affinity for learning and an allergy for injustice. He displayed an affinity for learning. He also displayed an allergy for injustice. This allergy for injustice surfaced in his first appearance in Scripture as an adult. When he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, remember what Moses did? Moses killed that guy. The next day, Moses saw more mistreatment and intervened again. And this time, the Egyptians asked this question. Look at this. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Exodus 2 and verse 14. The first description we have of Moses is he is called a prince and a judge. Now, remember that. Moses takes one step onto the stage of history and is called a prince and a judge. Now, how accurate is that description? We'll go to act two in the life of Moses. By now, Moses has scampered into the badlands where he encounters more injustice. Remember, 
Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. And look what Moses does. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Exodus 2, verses 16 and 17. We have two appearances of Moses in Scripture, and in both occasions, he's rising to defend the one who is being attacked. Now, what drove Moses to protect these girls? Well, maybe maybe they are pretty, <laughs> or maybe he's hungry, or maybe both. But I got to think there's something deeper. Could it be that seeds of fairness have been planted by God in the soul of Moses? And when he decks the cruel Egyptians or scatters the shepherds, is he acting out his God-given bent toward injustice? Is he just doing who God made him to be? The rest of his life would say so. Remember that phrase, that job description he was given by those Egyptians? Prince and judge. Moses returned to Egypt. You remember this time with the Lord's blessing through the burning bush. And what did he do? He dismantled Pharaoh and unshackled the Hebrews. Moses, the prince, delivered the children of Israel. And then in the wilderness, Moses, the judge, proved to be the framer for the Torah and the teachings of a new nation. Can the strengths of the past serve as signposts for the future? I think they did in the case of Moses. And I think they did in the case of another young priest who displayed a youthful love for the law. Fast forward 2,000 years and look at this young man studying at the feet of Jerusalem's finest teachers. He follows the teachings of Moses with razor-sharp precision. And he has aligned himself with the Pharisees, the most ardent and zealous observers of the Scriptures. And they defended the law with zeal. And zeal is a word you got to use when you describe this man because it's the word he used to describe himself. He wrote of his early years, Zealous? Yes. In fact, I harshly persecuted the church. Philippians 3 and verse 6. The zeal of young Saul prompted his initial appearance in Scripture. In fact, it's curious that just like a murder brought Moses onto the stage, a murder brings Saul, who will later be Paul, onto the stage. Angry Pharisees cast, speaking of Stephen, out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, you can call young Saul misguided. You can call him mistaken and misled, but don't call him mild. <laughs> I mean, you scratch him and he bleeds commitment. In his earliest portraits, he is a zealous man. And if you studied the life of Paul, you know in his later portraits, he's equally zealous. Whether he saw the legalist or Paul the Apostle, he impacts people. He can't sit still. He is cause-driven. Peter, on the other hand, might tolerate some hypocrisy in the church. Not Paul. Paul will wade in and put up his fists and straighten it out. And with him, you're either in or you're out. You're hot or you're cold. Whether he was killing disciples or making them, Paul is passionate. Paul is a passionate man 
Early in his life, this passion appears. And you may not know exactly where he's headed in life, but you know he's going to make a difference everywhere he goes. His early life gave a forecast to his later years. With Paul and Moses, the strength of youth became a passion of life. Can I give you one more example? Of course I can. I have the microphone, don't I? <laughs> Consider the case of Billy Frank. He grew up on a dairy farm. He was rousted out of bed every morning, somewhere between 2.30 and 3 a.m. with his brother Melvin to perform the chores of the dairy farm. Now, his younger brother Melvin loved it. His younger brother, Melvin, would follow his father around volunteering for duties even before he was old enough to take them on. Billy Frank was willing, but he was tolerant of the chores. He and Melvin were very different. They had the same father, the same mother, but boy, they did not have the same bent. Because as soon as his chores were over, young Billy Frank would escape into a hayloft where he kept a collection of books. And he would read. He would read about Tarzan, Marco Polo. By the age of 14, he had traced the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. I wonder what his dad, the dairy farmer, thought of this boy, the bookworm. His favorite books were about missionaries. Even before he had made a commitment to Christ, he was reading about preachers and missionaries in far-off lands and wondering what it must be like to carry the gospel around the world. As a young man, he went to Florida Bible Institute. And this interest, this fascination with ministers and ministry continued. Every time a preacher would come to visit the campus, especially from overseas, he volunteered to do anything to be close to that minister. He would polish his shoes. He would wait on his table. He said there were times he even caddied when they liked to play golf. And he would write home letters to his mother saying, oh, I want to be like that man. I want to be like that man. I want to be like that man. One more ingredient in the life of young Billy Frank that's important that appeared early in his life. He was a young man of boundless energy. He was hyperactive before the word had been invented. His mother even took him to the doctor. She said, I can't get the kid to sit down for five seconds. And the doctor said, he's all right. It's just the way he was built. Now, what happens? What happens when you have that kind of mosaic in a life? A kid fascinated by learning, loves to read, and loves to read not just about anything, but about missionaries, about the gospel. And he's full of energy. What happens to a boy like that in life? And what happens when God convinces young Billy Frank about sin and salvation and the message of the gospel? Well, in the case of Billy Frank, he made a decision. He said, you know, I'm going to quit going by my first two names, Billy Frank 
I want people to take me seriously. After all, I want to be an evangelist. And people took young Billy Graham seriously. Now, what if Billy had not heeded his heart? Or what if Mr. Graham had said, you know, Billy, I appreciate your desire and love for books, but we're dairy farmers. What if he hadn't heeded his passion or what if someone had neglected his? Or the more personal question is, what are you doing with yours? As you look back over your life, can you not string together some moments that say something about who God made you to be? I've got some passages for you to consider. We've looked at some people. Now, can we take just a second and look at a few passages? Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses, verse 10. It is God himself who has made us what we are and given us lives from Christ Jesus. And long ago, ages ago, he planned that we should spend these lives in helping others. I know of no passage in Scripture that gives us more insight into your unique fabric than Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Are you the sum of heredity and society, a random collection of chromosomes and genetic code and DNA? By no means. According to this passage, you are God's idea, pre-planned and pre-packed for his purpose, divinely designed. At a moment before moments existed, the sovereign star maker declared, I will make, he puts your blank, your name in the blank. I will make Tom. I will make Mary. And I will make him or I will make her blank, blank, blank. Inquisitive, tolerant, restless, patient, stubborn, loyal, tender. He made you who you are. Here's the big message. You are God's idea. And you may have surprised your parents when you were born, but you didn't surprise God. And you may puzzle your peers, but you don't puzzle God. And everybody else may be trying to get you to stop being who you are, but I believe that in the right context, it is fair to say God made you who you are. He made you with characteristics and abilities that are intended to serve other people, to bring glory to him. You are God's idea. As a result, you are a good idea. You are a key part in the great plan that God has. And if you allow God, he will fit you into his most excellent harmonies. What God said about Jeremiah he said about you, before I made you in your mother's womb, I chose you. And before you were born, I set you apart for a special work. Jeremiah 1 and verse 5, set apart for a special work. When I was in college, I had a job during summer, during Christmas break at a machine shop 
in Odessa, Texas that my brother-in-law used to own. And my job was to sweep up the metal shavings in this machine shop. It was a big place, the size of an airplane hanger. And I knew nothing about lathes and drill sets, but I was amazed at these dozens of men who would work eight to ten hours taking just metal and making it into something that somebody needed in the oil field. You need a little thin piece of metal, these guys can make it. You need something big with a whole board down the center that you can put a big screw into, these guys can do it. You come to them with the raw material, you come to them with your need, and they can make it. They can set it apart for a special purpose. Well, long before these men existed, God was in his workshop making you for a special purpose. He knew that Moses, he knew the children of Israel would need a prince and a judge. And so he made Moses. He knew the New Testament church would need a zealous apostle of grace who wouldn't back down. So he gave the church Saul who became Paul. I think he need, knew our generation would need an evangelist like Billy Graham, so he gave us Dr. Graham. But I believe it's just with every bit of fiber in my system that God knew your generation would need you, and so he gave us you. Please hear me. If you're not you, no one else will be. Nobody is in the wings waiting to be you, right? You're the only you we got. And if you're not you, no one else will be. And there's something freeing, something liberating about saying, you know, God gave me this ability and how can I dedicate my life to using it for his glory? Liberate yourself from thinking that the only place that God uses people for his glory is in a pulpit or in some religious work. Heaven forbid that thought. God has equipped you with a certain ability to hear the problem of an engine without even lifting the hood. God did that. Some of you can make a cake without even opening a cookbook. God did that. Some of you can slam a ball out of the ballpark. He made it so easy for you. For some reason, God gave you that ability. And your privilege and my privilege is to spend a life unpacking this suitcase that God has given us. This is huge. Please hear this. His design defines your destiny. His design defines your destiny. You want to know what you're called to be? Then look inside you and see what he gave you to do. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 11 says, If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Want to know what God wants you to do with your life? Then check your supplies. What has God supplied you to do? You'll find your life description in God's provision. Now, some people might think that's simplistic. That's a little too easy. We prefer a more complicated approach. We're kind of like the confused farmer who sought the help of a friend. Joe, he said, I've got a problem. I've got two horses and I can't tell them apart. So he brought his friend over. His friend said, I can help you. And he looked at the horses. He studied the horses. He measured the horses. And after some time, he said to his friend, Joe, he said, Joe, I may be wrong, but it seems to me that the black one is just two inches taller than the white one. 
Now, we don't measure horses, but we measure everything else. When it comes to understanding our place in the world, we measure our aptitude, we measure our personality, we measure our heredity, we consult tea leaves, we consult horoscopes. Could it be that the answer has been right inside you all along? That the oak is inside the acorn. That God has designed you and that design is right there. I would urge you to read your life backwards. Say, God, how can I know who you made me to be? And take a look back over your life. What have you done well consistently? What have you loved to do consistently? You may be surprised what you learn. Thank you for joining me today. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe on Access More or wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Until next time. Stay encouraged. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Do you have questions about Noah's flood? If so, you don't want to miss The Ark in the Darkness in theaters near you on March 20th and 21st. If you're interested in delving deeper into the mysteries and questions surrounding Noah's flood, The Ark in the Darkness will provide thought-provoking insights from a team of scientists with answers from Answers in Genesis and Liberty University. The Ark in the Darkness reveals the truth about Noah's Flood. The incredible film hits theaters on March 20th and 21st. Buy tickets now at noahsflood.com. That's noahsflood.com.